This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. We see the same problem again in New England, and we have to find ways to retain and encourage and kindle the flame. And that's, that's a tall order. At any rate, Freelinghausen uh, discovered this kind of formal Christianity, going to church, going through the motions, uh, even going through catechisms and so forth. And still there was a lack of, of real spiritual growth. So he decided to embark on an energetic program of reform. He did crazy things like visiting people in their homes. Good night, how nutty can you be? He began to talk about and enforce discipline that immorality would not be tolerated in the churches. And above all, he preached fervent evangelistic sermons, all of which had some very positive responses among the people. But there were other folk who didn't like what Freelinghausen was doing. They felt that he was too passionate in his thinking. Uh, he persevered despite the opposition, and conversions began to occur. One here, one there, a couple here, three there, a dozen there. And so there was what amounted to something of a small local revival by 1726. And it began to spread to other Dutch Reformed churches. And by 1726, Freelinghausen is sort of a leader in this local revival. And we can look to him in particular as uh, the person who, who started and first brought these, this, this idea of revival and preaching the new birth to the states. Those who are Presbyterians are not far behind. We have a family called the Tenets. William Tennant dates 1673 1746 Presbyterian and he too uh, was a tool of the Lord in bringing revival among Presbyterians a gifted scholar he studied at the University of Edinburgh he was big on homeschooling he educated his children himself in fact he started a little college called the Log College in the Chamonix, Pennsylvania I've been there uh, he too, Tennant was, William Tennant, was indebted to the Puritans. You don't need to know how to spell Nishamini. I'm not going to, that, that's, uh, I probably won't ask that on, on the final exam. But this vital Christianity was also characteristic of William Tennant. Uh, he had two uh, younger, there were three sons, John Tennant, William Tennant Jr., 
all of whom were pa- both of whom were pastors, but the but the oldest son was Gilbert Tennant. His dates are 1703 to 1764. And he is the most important of the three uh, sons. In 1726, Gilbert Tennant arrived in New Brunswick, New Jersey, as a Presbyterian pastor. And that brought him into the orbit of Freelinghausen. And here we have uh, the meeting of Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed. And they liked each other. They were kindred spirits. Gilbert Tennant and Theodore Freelinghausen. And they encourage one another with this kind of preaching. This preaching of a vital Christianity about the new birth. Now initially, Gilbert didn't have the same kind of success that Freelinghausen had. Uh, There was a certain dullness and he had some difficulty. But Gilbert uh, persisted and he took this sort of approach. He insisted, Gilbert did, that no one ever became a Christian without first realizing that he was not a Christian already. Now, just a word here. Uh, some of you are aware of people like uh, Cornelius Van Til at Westminster Seminary. He was famous for saying, I can never remember a time when I didn't belong to the Lord, when I didn't have a passionate love for the Lord. Uh, and I think that's valid, to be sure. But Tennant, uh, Gilbert Tennant felt that there was a little too much of that, that, there, that sometimes can, can go awry, that you can uh, think that just because you've gone to church, therefore you're a Christian. You're born a Presbyterian, therefore you're a Christian. Kind of thinking. And one can sort of become a little bit deluded about his, his spiritual state. And so Gilbert Tennant was trying to address that kind of formal Christianity. You can't know, you can't become a Christian without first realizing that you're not a Christian. He felt that someone must come to an understanding that they are sinful and therefore estranged from God, deserving condemnation, before you can talk about receiving God's grace and forgiveness of sins. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, We live in a a world, a culture, which sort of says, well, you know, if you you just we're all going to end up in heaven sort of in the end anyway. You believe what you believe and we believe it sincerely, and I'll believe what I believe, we'll sort of all end up there. I think there's probably a need for this kind of preaching once again uh, to be mindful that people out there think they're pretty good. Uh, People don't uh, very well understand that they are sinners and that's an offense to God's holy character. That's That's a message that is very old, but I dare say it would be very new to many, many people sitting in the pews of our churches today. And so maybe there's a need right now for you as you go out and begin to preach to talk about these kinds of things. Don't let people sort of uh, think because they've gone to church all their lives that they're Christians. They may very well not be. Thus there's a need to preach uh, the recognition that you're a sinner and what that really means in light of a holy God. Anyway, 
a real practical application here. At any rate, uh, Gilbert Tennant persevered with the help and encouragement of Freelinghausen, and despite his initial uh, lack of success, pretty soon, within a few years, the 1730s, revivals began to break out among the Presbyterians in New Jersey and in New York. Just a quick note about Gilbert's brother, John Tennant. Uh, he wasn't quite so much involved as Gilbert, but Tennant was also a pastor who preached the same kinds of things. He was from he had a, a ministry in Freehold, New Jersey, famous because that's where the boss is from. <laughs> Springsteen. You didn't think I knew that kind of stuff, did you? Anyway. Well, that's, those are the early stirrings. And now let's look at Big John. Big John. John's dates are 1703 to 1758. Is that, is that better? John Edwards is one of those... Uh, very, very important persons who was involved in revival. In fact, he even saw a few local revivals before the Great Awakening in his own ministry. He was involved in revival in Connecticut, and he played a central role. Edwards, as you know, is considered by secular scholars as well as religious evangelical types to have been one of the most brilliant minds America has ever produced. Uh, Perry Miller of Harvard said of Edwards, he is the greatest philosopher-theologian yet to grace the American scene. Uh, anybody who's thinking about doing doctoral work, Edwards would be a great topic because there is respect for Edwards in the secular community. And if you're thinking about ways in which you can, can find a, an area in which you can do real good research, uh, academic research, in a secular environment, uh, it might help if you were working on something like Jonathan Edwards, someone like Jonathan Edwards, some aspect of his thought, because the topic itself has credibility. Because he's recognized as one of the great thinkers, philosophers and thinkers of America ever. Uh, you have, you know, even at uh, I mean, Yale University is producing the works of Jonathan Edwards because he's a significant historical figure. Now, they obviously don't agree with his thought necessarily, but uh, he is still reckoned as a great mind. And so if you were, for example, I would say to someone, if you're thinking about doing work in American church history or something, uh, you might consider Jonathan Edwards. At, at Yale, in fact, there is an evangelical Christian there who is one of the, the best Edwards scholars in the country, uh, Harry Stout. So, just a word to the wise on that one. Uh, Edwards is sometimes pictured as uh, a rather fiery Puritan, a fire and brimstone kind of guy who preached sermons such as sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, 
and you can sort of, I mean, the, the popular conception is that this Edwards is sort of leaning over his podium, frothing at the mouth. You know, that's, that's, the, that's a very sort of general perception of Edwards, which is in fact very, very far from the truth. Uh, Edwards, as it turns out, was a kind of shy, reserved person, uh, more inclined to the study than the pulpit. Uh, a very interesting person. One of the things I love about someone like Jonathan Edwards, uh, sometimes seminary students, and I think you need to hear this, uh, we, we have a tendency to want to emulate uh, the, the uh, very outspoken, the very dramatic, the very powerful preachers, the guys who are very extrovert in their personality. We have Steve Browns, and that's what we want to be like. And what I want to say is that we don't all have to be Steve Browns. We're, some people are shy. Uh, some people are not. It's okay either way. But I think sometimes uh, people uh, think, well, because I don't, I'm not like a Steve Brown or, or some person that I can't be a very good preacher. It ain't so. Uh, God has given you your particular personality, and God can use it. And he took someone like Edwards, who, as a matter of fact, was pretty dull in terms of personality, uh, certainly not an extrovert, and yet he preached sermons that resulted in people uh, breaking down in tears, weeping, uh, not because he was this flamboyant, dramatic speaker, but because he was preaching the truth and the Holy Spirit was very, very active. So it doesn't... Uh, I, the reason I talk about that is because I had a real problem. When I was in seminary, I didn't know if I could ever be a preacher because I knew I couldn't get up in front of people and speak. That's the one thing in life I knew I couldn't do. And that's what I do for a living now. I mean, it's, it's, the Lord has a great sense of humor. Uh, so it can. I mean, the Lord can work. So... Don't think that you, if you don't have one of these flamboyant personalities that you can't be used. Edwards was shy. He would spend sometimes, well, on the average, about 10 to 12 hours a day in the study. I mean, this guy was a serious scholar. His sermons were very tight and logically, theologically coherent. Uh, something that would probably drive the modern uh, Pew sitter today, mad because there's so much theology. And talk about delivery. I mean, don't they tell you that that's sort of that's the essence of preaching is delivery? Well, you know how you know how you know how Edwards preached. <laughs> kind of held up like that in red. Uh, it's it's really again it's a, it's a marvelous testimony to the fact that God used a rather dull person to do his bidding. I, I love, I love that kind of idea. God can use even you. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I, didn't say, I, didn't, I, I didn't say that. I've got a quote here. Uh, someone asked uh, someone who sat under Edwards if Edwards was an eloquent preacher. And this person responded, well, he had no studied, studied variety of voice and no strong emphasis. He scarcely gestured 
or even moved, and he made no attempt by the elegance of his style to gratify the imagination. But if you mean by eloquence the power of presenting an important truth before an audience with overwhelming weight of argument, with such intenseness of feeling that the whole soul of the speaker is thrown into every part of the delivery, the solid attention of the whole audience is riveted. Mr. Edwards was the most eloquent man I ever heard speak. What I think that, that says is that there was an intensity in his voice, that he wasn't merely reading, but he wasn't a grand dramatist like someone like Whitfield, a very different kind of person. Calvin, incidentally, was that way too, a, a fairly shy person, reserved, and yet a, a very, very good preacher. And the, the, the consensus is, is that most often uh, Edwards spoke with rather quietly. I mean, he wasn't this, this grand speaker with great delivery. Uh, anyway, let's look at his life now briefly. That was that sort of intro, looking at his life quickly. He was the son, he was a PK, son of Timothy Edwards uh, in uh, East Windsor, Connecticut. Edwards was, I said earlier, he was a brilliant uh, scholar. We see evidence of that brilliance very early on. By the age of 13, he had mastered Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Uh, that's, a, that's pretty daunting. He was also, had also written essays on, in, sci, in scientific matters. In fact, he wrote a famous essay as about a 13-year-old on insects. And he described in minute detail the habits of spiders. One sees in this particular scientific essay uh, where he got some of the imagery for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. By this time, he'd also read Sir Isaac Newton and apparently understood Newton's uh, theories. At the age of 13, he entered Yale graduated at 17. It was during his time at college that uh, he underwent a deepening of his own religious convictions. And one of the things that, that really overwhelmed him was this notion of the sovereignty of God. That was a, a deepening uh, kind of thing. And again, let me stop and say... One of the most important things we can do to grow as Christians, one of the most important resources we have in times of trouble, is a study and understanding of the character of God. I think one of the most useful things I have ever done in my life, or my wife for that matter, is to spend some time studying and thinking about the character of God. Who is He? What's He like? And that has had dramatic effects in our lives. And I think we see here an example of the deepening of his faith because he, he came to a deeper understanding of the character of God, of the attributes of God. You, I promise you, it is the most useful thing you could do is to study the attributes of God. Well, he graduated at 17, decided to do two more years of graduate work he then took a short pastorate in New York of only a few months, 
and then he became a tutor at Yale in 1725 and 1726. And then in 1727, his real ministry begins when he becomes an assistant pastor to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in Northampton, Massachusetts, 1727. I should also add, I'll say more about this later, but uh, that's when he also married Sarah Pierpont. If you if you're, want to look at a, at a great book on the marriage of Edwards... Uh, there's a book by Elizabeth Dodds, D-O-D-D-S, Marriage to a Difficult Man, The Uncommon Union of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Uh, it'll bless your heart. Well, when Edwards got to uh, Northampton, uh, he found what so many others had found, that spiritual dullness had settled in there as well. Even though there had been before this, a few revivals in this area. Stoddard died in 1729 and Jonathan Edwards succeeded his own grandfather as pastor of the church in Northampton. One of the other things that uh, young Jonathan Edwards faced besides spiritual uh, laziness is he also encountered a, a, a dalliance with Arminianism. Uh, it began, the, some of these ideas imported from Europe began to infiltrate more and more into Nor uh, New England. And you find more and more stress on free will, stress on human ability, man's ability to cooperate with God in salvation. And I just love this next thing. <laughs> what Edwards does, seeing these two major problems, creeping Arminianism, and spiritual uh, laziness, he decides to preach five sermons on justification by faith alone. Now, what's extraordinary here is that the way to counter spiritual dullness and bad theology is with good theology. <laughs> As a result of these five sermons, revival for the first time in Edward's own career broke out in 1734 and 1735. Now, just think about this. Do you think that most people believe today that revival can come from preaching sermons on justification by faith alone? Isn't that too doctrinal? Isn't that too heavy? Wouldn't that just fly over people's heads? Well, not in 1734 and 1735. Uh, truth made a difference. Uh, you know, I, I guess I, I guess you can tell that this is something that I, I feel pretty strongly about. Uh, but that's what we're about. We're about the truth. And the truth changes people. That's at the core of what we are, what we're supposed to do as ministers. Whether you're working with lay people or, or in the pastorate or whatever, truth is what makes a difference. That changes people from the inside out. Edwards wrote uh, this revival that came from his preaching on justification by faith alone. Quote, 
this work of God made a glorious alteration in the town of Northampton so that in the spring and following summer the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Let me just stop there. That's a kind of a, an emotive language, this, a sense of the presence of God. Uh, doctrine, truth, uh, also has an emotional side to it. People ought to be able to be emotional about the truth. Truth ought to produce right emotions. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being passionate Calvinists. And I think that's what we see going on here is the truth inspired uh, spiritual passion. That ought to be the case with us. He goes on. It was never so full of love. How does love come from preaching justification by faith alone? Nobody would believe it, would they? So justification produces love, nor was it so full of joy. People had smiles on their faces as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families because of the salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. I tell you, I would have loved to have seen that kind of thing happen. I feel like, I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where that kind of preaching has brought about revivals in, in, a, in, a, in a smaller community. I, I have sort of seen, at least tasted, just what Edwards is talking about. And it's a glorious thing to see, to be a part of. The Lord works, and I think the truth has got to be a major, it's got to be there. I'm always reminded that, uh, you know, we sometimes we, we, we put uh, a piety, which is so important, we sort of put that first, or, and morality, and all of that's very, very important. But I'm always reminded about Luther. Luther always said, what we are about, that is the Protestants, we're not about being we're not about parading ourselves as necessarily being more moral or even more pious than the Catholics. What's at stake, said Luther, is doctrine, the truth. And the truth ought to produce piety. It ought not to be the other way around. Well, compared with the earlier sort of local revivals of the tenants and Freelinghausen, uh, this little awakening was a little more widespread in Connecticut. By 1737, however, things had suffered decline once again. And Edwards, in 37, decided to write a book about the revival that he had seen as a result of preaching five sermons on justification. He wrote a wonderful book entitled A Faithful Narrative narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundreds of souls in Northampton. Uh, often known as a narrative. Yep. Faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. And with the publication of this book, Edwards is sort of in now in the forefront 
uh, as a scholar and a participant in this notion of revival. And the Great Awakening in 1740, Edwards continued his ministry in Northampton until a controversy broke out. The controversy went like this. Edwards had come to believe, in contrast to his grandfather, that uh, people ought to be real believers in the church. And until they became, gave a credible profession of faith, were barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's the view that Edwards came to hold. Stoddard, his grandfather, had relaxed the traditional Puritan practice by allowing persons who had gave no evidence of being converted yet to become members and to partake of the Lord's Supper. So Stoddard permitted people who had gave no evidence, no credible profession of faith, and let them become members of his church and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Stoddard had a conviction that the Lord's Supper was a, quote, converting ordinance, that it had power in and of itself to convert. And so, as a result, he allowed anyone who was living an outwardly decent life to attend church and to partake of the Lord's uh, supper. Uh, in this, he is somewhat, or he's significantly innovative compared to his Puritan uh, roots. In this as well, Stoddard went well beyond the so-called halfway covenant. Do you know what the halfway covenant is? Let me just give you a word on that. The halfway covenant goes like this. Originally, the Puritans in New England had limited church membership to those who could give uh, a credible profession of faith, that they had been saved. Uh, the idea was that they wanted their congregations to be congregations of truly converted people. That's what the early Puritans wanted. But in the next generation, the children of those original Puritans all of whom were baptized, but not all of whom were converted. They didn't have an experience of conversion. Uh, but when that second generation grew up, there was this uh, a sense in which many of them had not had a conversion experience, even though they had been baptized as infants. And they grew up in the church, and they wanted their children to be baptized as well. So the Puritans uh, came up with this halfway idea, halfway covenant, in order to preserve the church and to have a ministry to the community at large and to keep as many people under the influence of the church as possible. So they came up with this solution, that the child of someone who has no credible profession of faith but who was baptized as an infant was permitted to bring their child for baptism in the church. 
But it's only a halfway membership in the church because the child is therefore not permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper even when he's an adult unless he has been had a conversion experience. And so it's called a halfway covenant because the children of that second generation Puritans, that is, those who had not had an experience of salvation, who did not have a credible profession of faith, but who had been baptized, were permitted to have their children baptized, but that's all. They didn't get the other benefits of church membership, such as partaking of the Lord's Supper or any of the other uh, benefits. So it's ha- they're sort of halfway in the church is the kind of idea. So, at any rate, Stoddard had gone beyond the halfway covenant idea by permitting uh, people who had not experienced uh, saving faith or a credible profession of faith to partake of the Lord's Supper. The result was uh, that Jonathan Edwards came much more strongly to the conviction that that was not an appropriate thing, that there had to be a credible profession of faith before someone could partake of the Lord's Supper. And so he insisted upon that view. As a result, he was fired in 1750. The great... There's also hope, guys. If you lose your job, uh, there's still hope if you get fired. Uh, Because John Edward himself uh, was fired in 1750. And what did the great Jonathan Edwards do once he had been fired from his pastorate? No. <laughs> I guess he could. Classic, classic, classic. What year was he fired? 1750. He became a missionary to the Indians. Considered a sort of lowly clerical post. He became a missionary to the Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And although he was somewhat isolated from the mainstream, uh, he did do some of his most outstanding work there. He wrote his famous work, The Freedom of the Will, in 1754 while a missionary to the Indians. There's also, I think in all of this, a great sense of humility in this great man. Uh, that he would continue to minister wherever there was an opportunity, whether it was to you know uh, people in, in uh, Northampton or whether it was Indians in Stockbridge. One of the other things just to note is we, we tend to think of, of Edwards as being a stick in the mud. Uh, he's somewhat innovative at certain points. For example... Uh, the tradition was that there was only psalm singing in these congregational churches. He introduced and encouraged the singing of hymns, which makes him something of an innovator. He was also an innovator in terms of uh, Christian education. Uh, he encouraged, this is this will blow you away. Uh, the, the, the norm had been that all ages met in the same room and heard the same lesson. There was no age distinction. Uh, Edwards, being the progressive that he was, thought that there ought to be different levels of instruction for different age groups. Amazing. 
He also encouraged storytelling. Anyway, now I want to talk a little bit about, I'll finish him off here in just a minute, but talk about his, uh, his marriage. I, t- I told you about the title of the book by Elizabeth Dodds, uh, Marriage to a Difficult Man. The difficulty that she's referring to there is the fact that he's a very committed minister who spends a great number of, of hours every day away in his study preparing sermons. Uh, but he's not difficult in many other ways. In fact, Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah had one of those great marriages. He met her in 1723 while he was a student at Yale. And she, Sarah Pierpont, was only 13 years old. Robbing the cradle, as they say. Yeah. He was what, 15? 20. Oh, well, he, well, it was 1723. He was, yeah, 20 years old. Uh, she was uh, the daughter of a fairly prominent clergyman in New Haven. Edwards was the bookish nerd, a geeky sort of guy. But the geek noticed the debutante sort of girl. And while studying for his MA, uh, his mind began to wander. We have. Is that the providence of God? <laughs> we have a little note that he scribbled into his Greek grammar uh, in the year 1723. And the note goes like this. You can tell his mind was wandering. He says, They say there is a young lady in New Haven. She has a strange sweetness about her, a singular purity in her affection. She is most conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world. She is of wonderful sweetness calmness and universal benevolence of mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems always to be full of joy. Clearly, the 20-year-old Edwards was smitten by the 13-year-old Sarah Pierpont. And four years later, July 28, 1727, they were married. Uh, there was a young man who was a pastoral intern. By the way, that's how uh, seminaries, sometimes seminary students got their education back in those days. You would take up residence in the home of a pastor. The young intern was a man named Samuel Hopkins who became a very prominent theologian in his own right. But Hopkins writes of their marriage, uh, Edwards and Sarah. He says, they had a perfect harmony and mutual love and esteem. Uh, which subsisted between them. Uh, We know, for example, that Edwards, despite the fact that he had long hours of study, it was regularly his habit to take some time off in the afternoon and go horseback riding with his wife. Isn't that... Further, further, every night... 
They would have devotions together. Uh, my point, uh, you think me sentimental, do you? Uh, the point is that here's a fellow who invested awfully, an awful lot of time in his ministry, but he also found time to cultivate his relationship with his wife and his children. Uh, there's a, a very relevant point of application here for all of us. Uh, we had a nice discussion about this uh, Tuesday. Uh, but family is very, very important. And I think one ought not to sacrifice our family for the sake of the ministry. And I think Edwards is a nice example of someone who worked very, 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 very hard for the sake of the Lord. And yet had enough presence of mind to balance that out and to invest time in his family. I think that's important. Can you tell I'm preaching from, from church history? A little bit? Yeah. It's interesting that uh, they had 11 children and they had a remarkable legacy, those children. Someone tracked down all of their descendants up, up through 1900. And they discovered among the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards 13 college presidents 65 college professors, two graduate school deans, 100 lawyers, 66 physicians, 80 holders of public office, three senators, three governors, and a great many more pastors. Uh, it, was a, it was a family that kept the faith going from generation to generation to generation, it seems. Uh, very uh, remarkable, remarkable group. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.